From Daylight Interactive, this is Stories for You. I'm your host, Kazuki Akiba. This is a show where I talk with different individuals ranging from artists to entrepreneurs about their journey of where they began, where they went, and where they are now. Because we met, what, almost a year and a half ago, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, at the TED Talk um, mm-hmm. that you uh, had about that emojis tra- interpreted as a different type of data and how you used it as a news source. That was kind of uh, cool to like listen to. Funny part was, while you were talking, your dad was sitting right next to me. And, oh, and, I didn't know that. Yeah, and he's like, that's my son, by the way. I'm like, oh, really? I didn't know that. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, literally, he was like, that's my son. Isn't he awesome? I'm like, yeah, he's great. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's, uh, that's very sweet. Yeah. I uh yeah. Thank you. Yeah, that it was kind lot. of interesting just being in that conference and being able to really connect with you is great because I think it's really hard to, especially when you're of your stature and being able to talk to a presenter is kind of always great. But, you you know, most people don't have a chance to go because after they present, they just walk off, you know, because mm. they're like, I'm done. I already talked for an hour. Like, mm-hmm. I need to do something else in my life. But you actually stayed and actually engaged as a community. So, I, like, what was your experience like talking with some people for TED? I think it was great. I think it was, uh, I was very honored to be asked to, to give a talk. I was, uh, frankly, I didn't think I could do it because when we convened, we had all the other presenters and they all had very, they just knew who they were. And they were like, I'm, I'm a cancer biologist and this is what I do and this is my lab and these are all the awards I've won. And you're just like, wow. And then some, someone's like, you know, I'm an expert on the financial crisis and how robots are going to take over the economy. And these are all the, these are all the research I've done. And here I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm an emoji data scientist. And uh, I used to be a biostatistician. And oh, here's a story of how I got stopped at the border once. Uh, like, it seemed very jumbled. But I think as the the date neared, I think it really was an incredible opportunity for me to put my own life in perspective, to put my journey in perspective, and to figure out what is the what are the key insights I, I have to share if I had, you know, six minutes, eight minutes on a stage. I think for me it was... Uh, because I think the stories we tell other people are primarily stories we're telling ourselves. Um, you know, I was just talking with a friend. I was redoing my, my resume because I hadn't touched it in many years. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I like to put a summary section on the top. And she was like, don't do that. That's lame. Like, don't ever do that. I was like, it's not for the, the, it's not for the reviewer. It's for me. Right. Because that's <laughs> me telling myself who I am and what I want to do. Our guest today is data scientist Hamdan Azer. In addition to being a journalist, activist, and visiting professor at City University of New York, Hamdan is a founding member of the Bitcoin Center, a former Facebook data scientist and a TED Talk speaker. He is most known for his work with emoji data. Call home uh, Brooklyn, New York. Um, my parents came there from Pakistan when I was maybe a year and a half. And, uh, you know, I grew up in a, in a very, you know, mixed uh, immigrant neighborhood. Um, I went to, uh, I think I was very lucky, even though I was the oldest child and my parents had just come here, they were always, education was always very, very important to them. So they did, uh, you know, all the, they were always keen to do the research to make sure I was in the best school. I had the best opportunities, um, that, uh, my, our immigrant origins didn't hold me back. And, uh, it was a struggle. Um, I remember the first elementary school I went to. Um, back then, they had something called Eagle. There was an Eagle program for gifted and talented students. I think they call it Magnet in, in higher grades. But even in elementary school, there was uh, each grade had one Eagle class, which was the mo- the brightest kids, the, the best. And then there was a class called Next to Eagle, and then there was everyone else. And then the bottom of the barrel was the ESL classes. And uh, I was in, I think I was in first grade, 
at this uh, school and uh, I was doing great on tests like math, reading, English, everything. I was like at the top. But for some reason, they, they put me in ESL because when you come there, uh, I guess if your parents are immigrants, <laughs> that's how they that's how the school system worked back then. My parents had so many meetings with the principal and the principal one day told them your son is not Eagle material. And it just like crushed my parents. They were but they didn't give up. They kept fighting. Um, they put me in another school. Um, they moved to a, they didn't actually move. They, they kind of bended the, the system a little bit. My mom had an office in a different neighborhood and she put that down as our home address because the school over there would be an, a fresh shot. So she changed, she gamed the system because back then computers weren't that big a thing. <laughs> and she went to this brand new school. She went to the principal. She said, this is my son. He's incredible. Give him all the tests. We think he's, he should be an Eagle. And this was a brand new, a fresh start. Um, it was a much more immigrant friendly school and they, I remember this teacher had me, took me in a room and they talked to me and they said, your son is reading at a fifth grade level. And I, I was in second grade at this time and they put me in Eagle. And, uh, you know, I didn't always do great. No, I, had a, I was always a bit of a re rebellious growing up. Um, but I think that, that struggle that my parents went through on my behalf, that they believed in me even, though, even when I, I was like, sure, I'll be in ESL, I'll hang out on the playground, I'll, I, you know, I'll do whatever. But my parents always had that belief in me. They're like, we came here, we went through a lot of struggle, we left behind our families because we want you to have the best opportunities. And uh, I'm tremendously grateful to them for that. And I think as I grew up, it was like, okay, I really like math, but what do I, what do, I do with that? Because it wasn't just that I really liked math, it, I was also, uh, I liked speaking, I liked writing, I liked uh, being a leader, I liked uh, being an advocate for causes I believed in. And it was always like, how do I balance all of these things? From there, Hamdan attended junior high with an open curriculum that allowed students to learn subjects like math at their own pace. His interest in math continued in college, where he studied math and economics and was first introduced to stats. He would eventually earn a master's degree in a new field of biostatistics from the University of Michigan. Here's a way to apply math to, to the real world, to understanding how people behave, to understanding trends in the economy, to understanding, you know, l taking large amounts of information and finding stories within them. Um, it was something I really enjoyed. I ended up getting a master's in biostatistics. Um, that sort of set me on this journey as a statistician, as a data scientist. Um, but I don't think I've ever let any one thing define who I am. I think that's still, you know, it's one part of me. There, there's so many things I want to do. Well, like going a little bit back to that, how did you get interested in data science? Data science, I was in this field before the word data science even came into existence. Um, I think for me, data science is sort of a, a mesh of computer science, statistics, and, uh, you know, something, and behavior, human behavior. Um, I was into statistics, biostatistics, when no one really knew what it was. I had to tell people it was kind of like math, or I told them it was kind of like engineering. Um, it was just very early days. Um, and frankly, the field of biostatistics back then was also a bit narrow in its application. It was applied mostly to you know, statistical genetics or understanding population health trends. Um, I think only later did we realize that the tools that were, had been developed in this narrow field were actually very generalizable, that they could be generalized, that very soon the whole world was going to be data. And that in a, in a handful of fields had developed these very rigorous tools towards understanding data, but you could, the same tools you can use to understand the genome, you can use to understand uh, 
you know, how people make financial decisions and how they decide when to save money and how they decide uh, when to move and how, how data can help us understand human behavior at a much bigger scale. So, uh, so you said that you, you were like more of the precursor in getting into the data science. When did you think that this was going to be big? Like, wh- when was that um, moment? I think I was, in, I was in grad school and there was, uh, there was this guy, Hal Varian, who was the first, uh, he was the chief economist at Google, but he was a statistician. And he gave a quote to the New York Times in an interview. He said, uh, 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 I think in the next century, statistician is going to be the sexiest job of the 20, 21st century. And we all cut out that interview. We put it on our on our walls, like in, in my department. If you walked in the biostatistics department, like like every third professor's door had that thing on the wall, because finally it was like people are realizing how how important this is. Especially was the new age was the World Wide Web and obviously technology being more innovated. Uh, I I guess that's when you also realized that data could play a huge bigger part. Is that correct or? Yeah, absolutely. It's just like it became an integral part of people's lives. Like whenever you you Google something, Google is running a large algorithm. Google is, uh, you know, it's going through a tremendous amount of information to find what is most likely to fit what you are searching for. Um, Facebook, when you go to Facebook, Facebook's going through, you know, all of these people in the world, who are the people you're most likely to know? And obviously all of these algorithms have controversies and their ethical implications. Um, but at the very least, the fact that data is playing such a tremendous uh, role in our lives is something that, you know, no one, no one can argue with anymore. Hamdan's next endeavor will be in politics, working on Ron Paul's 2012 presidential campaign. I was a research assistant at Columbia at the business school. And then I get an email saying Ron Paul is having a youth program in Iowa to go out there for two weeks and knock on doors and make calls. And I had never been part of a political campaign. Um, I never really, uh, you know, I enjoyed talking about politics. I never wanted to get involved at that level. But Ron Paul was just that type of like a once in a lifetime candidate. Um, You know, here's a 70 something year old uh, obstetrician (laughs) from Texas. Um, And... uh, He's running for president, and not only is he running for president, he's running on these ideals that probably sound crazy and archaic to a lot of people. Um, but in 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 the the world in which we live, those ideas, many of those ideas, are deeply necessary. When he talks about the importance of protecting our civil liberties, like he was talking about the government reading our mail back when he was talking about the the post office. There was no email back then, but he was talking about that back then. Um, he was talking about uh, why are we in all these wars in all these countries trying to promote our way of life and spending trillions of dollars doing that when our own country is in shambles, when bridges are crumbling, when highways are collapsing, when you know, 30, 40% of children in many of our big cities can't even read or write or do math at, at a basic level of competency. Um, he was talking about, um, I think, the need to really adopt a principled stance in terms of who we are as a nation and not just trying to seek out our self-interest in every single it's not just everything is not a business transaction as some people think it is um, and i think that was important it really resonated a lot with me this was right after the iraq war when the patriot act was big the iraq war the afghanistan war there was so much going on all around the country and here was a guy saying we should end all the wars and we should protect our civil liberties and that resonated with me tremendously um yeah so i went to iowa um I'd never been to Iowa. I wanted to check it out. I thought it would be a cool thing to do for a week. And I get there, and there's a, a call center, essentially, um, with 200 volunteers all day making calls to voters. Um, 
if the election were held today, who would you vote for? Um, what issues do you care about? How likely are you to go vote? And as soon as I saw this, I was like, this is a, it's a giant survey operation. <laughs> I was like, I didn't know that you guys were running a data operation over here. And I was like, maybe I can do something here besides making phone calls and knocking on doors. Um, so I went up to the guy at the front of the phone bank and I said, hey, I'm a statistician. I have a master's from the University of Michigan. I'm a researcher at Columbia Business School. I'm tremendously passionate about this campaign. Put me to work. How can I help? And the guy was like, statistician, what's that? And I was like, statistician, statistics, you know, it's, it's the finding patterns in large amounts of data. It's, that's me. What, what can I do? He's like, uh, he was very confused because uh, back then no one really knew what data and politics was. It was we were very, very early. Um, and he said, OK, he didn't know what to do. So he just said, OK, grab a phone, grab a phone, make some calls, make some calls. <laughs> and I was like, oh, OK, that didn't work. Uh, but then I went back to him uh, three days later after having made, you know, maybe a few thousand calls. But this time I went up to him and I realized I can't stand on my laurels that I thought I had. I can't just impress him with buzzwords. Um, because that's how I had gotten most of my earlier opportunities in my life. I actually have to do something valuable. So I said, listen, I can tell you which parts of the state to focus on, where to call so that we're most likely to win. I can tell you what to tell voters that's going to make them most likely to go out and vote. I can tell you who's the most efficient caller in this phone bank. Anything you're doing, data, I can use data to help you do that better. And it was the same guy, and he looked at me, and I, I was afraid he was going to say, go make some calls. Um, but he said, where's your computer? You can do all of that? Log in right now. Log in right now. I was like, oh, shit. I actually have to do all of that right now. <laughs> uh, and that was it. That was how I, you know, within a few weeks, I was the campaign's national statistician. Um, I ended up traveling with the, the campaign to, you know, I think a dozen states. Um, and uh, it was an incredible, incredible experience. Um, because I was here, I was seeing my skills that I had, that I had honed over so many years in classrooms and through all of this rigor, and I was actually using it to make a difference. But going through that, it, was it kind of interesting to see how government worked? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, I think we, we have this image in our heads of what the world looks like and how it actually is, and we're like, oh, big companies, and this is how it must look like. It must be all these geniuses with wearing suits and everyone's coming up with in these incredible strategies. Or this is what the government is like, or you know, this is what the United Nations... We have all these images in our head, but actually I think most of the world is, is it's just people hanging on by a thread, you know, in over their heads, um, have no real idea what's going on around them, trying their best to, uh, to stay above water. Like, that's normal. Once you realize that that's the state of affairs in most of the world, in most of these big fancy offices, and this is not something to be afraid of, this is something to embrace, that this is an opportunity. Um, like, I think too many people are, are just afraid of failing. Um, like, I had a friend, he has a very comfortable, prestigious job working for the government, and I've been trying to persuade him to go, get into tech and work at one of these tech companies. And he's like, no, but what if it fails? Like, what if I don't know what to do? What if I can't do the job? And it's like, that's, all of that is going to happen. That company is going to fail. You won't know how to do your job. And one day you won't work there anymore. That doesn't mean that you can't learn a tremendous amount from going through that experience. And I think too many people are, are afraid of failure. And I think once you embrace the chaos and embrace failure, I think that uh, it's necessary to arrive at a more mature understanding of how, 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 to, how to go about this journey. Hamdan then went on to work at the Bitcoin Center NYC, the world's first live cryptocurrency exchange. Bitcoin, you see, is a type of digital currency 
in which encryption techniques are used to regulate the generation of units of currency and verify the transfer of funds, operating independently of central bank. So the guy at the front of the phone bank in this story uh, on the Ron Paul campaign who told me to make some calls and he told me to pull out my computer, he ended up becoming the founding the Bitcoin Center. That was, uh, that was Nick Spanos, who became a tremendous mentor to me in, in my life, who uh, I think uh, I was very lucky to meet him on that cold winter night in Iowa, maybe six, seven years ago. And uh, I had no idea that that's how my life would progress. During this time, Hamdan also served as radio talk show host briefly. He explained his positive mentality and fearlessness towards new experiences. Started out call, being called Radio Tahrir, and then changed his name to Muslim State of Mind. And they'd been around for 10, 15 years. And, you know, they just needed, uh, they needed people to come on and join their, their lineup. And uh, I said yes. <laughs> I think uh, the crazy, I try to say yes to the craziest things that come to me. So, because uh, it's just like, this is new, this is different. It's going to, you know, it's something different that I haven't done before. I need to work hard to have that mindset because it's so easy to get run down, to get, um, to get depressed, to, to feel hopeless. Like we live in a world that actually cultivates those types of feelings in a lot of people. Um, we think that a lot of these feelings are personal to us, but we live in a society that is created, that profits off of these feelings. Because when you feel depressed and hopeless, there's nothing to do, you're gonna go out and buy ice cream because you saw a TV ad that shows people eating ice cream and they feel so happy. Or you're gonna go, uh, you know, you're gonna sh consume. It's, it's a society that uh, creates consumption as the solution to people's uh, inner turmoil. Um, when actually the only, I think the greatest solution to our inner turmoil is ourselves. Um, we have to adopt the right mindset and uh, we have to always go out there and uh, tell ourselves that our brightest days are ahead of us and that we're young, we're talented, we're blessed, we're gifted. We have a responsibility to ourselves, um, to our society. Um, I think this world needs people who are awake, people who are cognizant of the, the gifts they've had and the opportunities they've had who want to use that to go make the world a better place. I think the Bitcoin movement really grew out of the Ron Paul movement in many ways, because I think Ron Paul, Congressman Ron Paul, Dr. Ron Paul had been talking for many years about currency and, and money and what is money in our lives. Because he taught people that there's the Federal Reserve, which controls the money supply and it keeps printing more and more and more money so that a dollar in uh, 1912 is worth maybe two and a half cents today. Um, so an old lady who put all of her money in a briefcase and buried it in, in the ground uh, and she thought she could buy a house with it. Maybe she can buy a Snickers bar with it today if she's lucky. And uh, this is a big reason for the economic crisis we're living in is because we're living in a, in a society ruled by debt. It's a society governed by spending more than we have the ability to spend. It's a society governed by centralization where we used to have governments running our lives and now it's uh, three or four big companies that are playing a tremendous, tremendous role. Um, like I, I, I got a new I, uh, iOS on my phone and it shows you something called screen time. It tells you how much time you're spending on your phone. And it's like six hours a day. Uh, I'm spending six hours a day in a way that's completely determined by three or four corporations, which is really scary. Like it's, a, and I've worked at one of those corporations, so uh, I know how scary it is to entrust, you know, trillions of human hours in the hands of a, a small company, you know, or big company in California. Um, it's not. It's, it's very scary. Um, and I think Bitcoin is, uh, 
is a is a baby step towards the idea that we can have decentralized technologies in our lives so we're not depending on one big company and one room full of engineers. Um, Bitcoin is the decentralization of money so that we don't need to de work, determine, uh, depend on a bank or a government uh, to transact with each other. Um, but that same principle has tremendous application. Just like we can decentralize money, we can decentralize companies, we can decentralize uh, institutions in our lives. Um, I think that's really the, the promise of cryptocurrency. That's the promise of the blockchain. When technology first came out, people thought there would be all this incredible companies everywhere would lower the barrier to entry. All these mom and pop shops would become tech entrepreneurs. And the reality is that they become tech entrepreneurs, some of them, and then they get bought up by one of these four companies. And all of a sudden, all of this power and all of this talent is uh, agglomerating in, in, in three or four companies. And uh, I think some people think it's better than it being agglomerating in governments, but I think it might be worse because there's less accountability. Um, there's just people don't realize how, how powerful these companies have become. And I think this is why cryptocurrency and blockchain and Bitcoin are, there's so much hunger for them um, because uh, people are asking more questions about why is power so centralized in our society. Hamdan also delved into what he learned from his experience at Facebook as a data scientist and how that experience translated that's coming up after these words from our sponsors. Welcome back to Stories For You and my conversation with Hamdan Azer. After working on Ron Paul's campaign, Hamdan moved on to work at several companies and eventually one of the biggest social media platforms that is out there today, Facebook. I think I learned about the importance of information. Because I think most of my work at Facebook was uh, really just figuring out like, what problem, what project should we work on? Who else is working on that project? Um, how do we get that? Once we work on that project, how do we share that with as many people in the company as possible? How do we get the right people to notice it? Um, how do we build more influence in the organization? Um, I think these are the types of questions everyone is asking on a day to day. It's really, it's just a giant organization where everyone's trying to compete with each other and, uh, on like the smallest, most minutest of things, but because Facebook is a giant company, these minute things end up affecting billions of people. Um, and it's, uh, I think a lot of it is influence. I think learning how to influence people, like for the longest time, I never understood what my boss did because he, he, was a, he had been a technologist kind of by training, but he didn't really code or anything anymore. Um, all he did was go to meetings. Um, and then I was like, what is, who is this guy? What does he do? But then over time, I began to learn that a lot of it, most of it was about managing flows of information and getting the right information to the right people and being in the right meetings and being being like, hey, there's this project. Uh, this is what you should work on because I heard so-and-so mentioning and if we do it, it'll get noticed by the right people and all of a sudden we're, our team's going to be big time. And he's not the only one doing that. There's like 40 other incredibly brilliant you know, people at his level just in our organization who are also doing the same thing. <laughs> it's all like, uh, and it's very hard to communicate within a large company um, that moves very fast. Because unlike a slow bureaucratic company where everything is documented and everything gets written up and there are all these archives, like I, I could do an analysis right now and find something really cool and I'll just send an email to my boss. And maybe that's the only record of it in the whole company. So now say some other team wants to do that same analysis, but they are not as familiar with the data as I am. So it might take one of their guys two months to do what I did in an afternoon. 
and he might do it not knowing I already did it like six months ago and there's no there, there's no use of that you know the results were not promising but he'll never find out unless he's friends with me or friends with my boss or he knows someone he can find out hey is anyone working on this you know uh, very niche point about the auction algorithm um, so managing that flow of information is actually critically important. And I think influencing people to, to do things um, is also very important. Something I noticed is that my boss never asked me, to, told me to do anything. No one at Facebook ever told me to do anything. It's always couched as a favor. Like, hey, can you do me a favor? But that's, that's just the culture. <laughs> I think it's, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, because I think it really blurs uh, social norms, it blurs market forces. Um, when everything is couched as a favor. Because when your boss is like, hey, can you do me a favor and do this thing over the weekend and I'm spending 20 hours not eating, sleeping or drinking because it's a favor to my boss. And of, of course, he's a good guy. Like, you know, I, I like him. He likes me. I want to do him a favor. But uh, it's like, what is, I think this is a big problem in, in modern society. I think it's a tool. It's so hard to do pure work in the world, to just work on a project because you love it, because there's always money involved, there's always power involved, there's always politics involved, there's always relationships involved. Uh, many people used to think academia was the best place where you can do pure research, but academia has a tremendous amount of politics also. Um, it's just very hard, I think. Uh, I think every, there's a lot of nuance in, in, in the world, and I think it's not very transparent. I think finding meaning is, is very hard in the society in which we live in today. Um, and I think it's, uh, it's important to be more transparent about it because I think many people go into it without knowing, having any idea what to expect. I actually could resonate with you in a lot of the points. It seems like the biggest point is communication, being able to be, have open, honest communication with different people on what you're working on, what you're doing, or else you're just not going anywhere, anywhere was it without understanding the big picture of why you're doing it. I think people don't ask us have a question. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I think Eric Fromm was an incredible psychologist in the early 20th century. He said, we live in a society that prizes growth over all things and encourages us to keep moving fast and to grow at all costs. But no one ever asked, why are we growing? Like, why do we need to grow? Um, and it's uh, it's an important question. Um, I think the the way startup culture and technology culture has um, has come into being is is a way that encourage like company like the Silicon Valley. The show was actually pretty fascinating because it showed you know how important it is to gr just keep growing. Like that's the end. When actually growing is is a means for something. If you look at a human being that keeps growing without end, that person becomes a, a carnival monstrosity. It's someone who's like getting a foot taller every year. Like this guy's <laughs> gonna die one day, or he's gonna end up in a in a in a circus. Um, gr un, uncurbed growth is never a good thing. Fa when Facebook is small, that people are spending 20 minutes a day on it, it's good. It's a good way to maybe it's good. It's a good way to connect with your friends and family to hear about that deal at the shoe store down the street. But when people are spending eight hours a day on it, when 12 year olds are posting pictures on Instagram, if it doesn't get 100 likes in the first five minutes, they delete it and they post a new one. It's a real thing. It's crazy. Um, that's all of a sudden it's like, well, actually, this is not a good thing. Maybe this is not a good thing. And the craziest thing is that this, none of this happens by design. There's no master plan at Facebook or at Google or at Amazon saying, you know, we want people to be spending 12 hours a day on this and for their whole social lives, we want people to be uh, depressed and killing themselves if their stuff isn't getting enough likes. Like no one designed that. It's just what happens uh, when you put a bunch of people in a room and when the incentives are set up to extract that type of behavior from, from those people. Um, the, the reality is we live in a very complicated world where we don't understand the effects of technology um, when we start working on a project. It only We only realize this later on and then 
it might be too late after that. We live in a very siloed society where very early on, you know, you guys are going to become journalists and you guys are going to become engineers and you guys are going to become cell biologists. And these fields never really talk to each other or understand their how to interact with each other. So we have technologists who are not taught to ask ethical questions. Um, we have uh, journalists who are not taught about technology. Like that's a lot of what we did at the Bitcoin Center was because every journalist who walked in said, we heard this is for drug dealers. I, I think a lot of it comes from lack of understanding of technology. It comes from trusting that we don't really need to know the intricacies of everything in our lives until it's too late. Um, no one really wanted to know what an algorithm was in 2011 and 2012. But now it's all anyone wants to talk about because all of a sudden they realize that this is really important to our life. And what are the things that today we should really dig beneath the hood and understand how these things are working? Um, because in the future, it might, be, it might be too late to ask those sorts of questions. I think you're right that a lot of the statistics and algorithm has been like used in many type of work, especially sports too, if mm -hmm. you notice. How do you think you should balance between human emotions and data? I think... Uh... I think uh, just because something can be counted doesn't mean it matters. I think that's a, it's a big lesson of our quantitative age, um, where a lot of things that matter can't really be quantified. Um, it's impossible. And if you try to quantify it and you think you're doing a great job at it, but your, your model for quantifying it is wrong, then you've wasted a lot of time. I think uh, not everything can be predicted. Very little of our lives can be predicted and optimized but at the same time, I think discipline is important, but I think we have to have room for spontaneity. And we have to have an understanding that, I think as one of the founders of statistics said, he said all models are, are wrong, but some models are less wrong than others. And uh, I think this is true of our lives. It's true of the, the world in which we live. And uh, just understanding that there's so much that we don't know um, and being open to, uh, to being wrong. Hamdan eventually moved into the world of emojis, the small digital images or icons used to express an idea or emotion in electronic communication, and started the website Pressmoji, which analyzes trending emojis during major political and cultural events, like Brexit or the 2016 US presidential election. I think I've always been trying to find my competitive advantage. I, I, I didn't know that's what I was trying to do, but I think in everything in my life, part of it is because I'm lazy. So if you tell me this is a field, there's like thousands of people working in this field, and if you spend 10 years becoming a master of this field, you can do whatever you want, and you'll be like, everyone's gonna love you. I'm like, that's a long time, 10 years is a long time. That's a lot of people I have to compete with and surpass in order to become a master of this field. Well, I'd rather work on a field where there's no one working in this area, and I can do something brand new that no one else has ever done. I think for me, it's about um, figuring out what are my skills, and what are fields that are lacking in these skills where I can go in and immediately have a tremendous impact? And I think this is why, I think this explains a lot of my life trajectory. It's when I ended up in politics by chance. It's because politics was a field that was very unsophisticated from a technological perspective. If you had a campaign with a guy who knew how to do macros in Excel, that guy was like the most quantitatively savvy person in that whole campaign by default, even if he just knew how to use Excel. He was like the, the wizard of that campaign. So yeah, it's like, would you rather know Excel and walk into a hedge fund where everyone and everyone's grandchildren knows Excel and have to compete with all these people? Or would you rather walk into a campaign where no one knows Excel? You know, but then it requires a different type of skills because just knowing something other people don't is only a small part of it. The next part of it is how do you use that to have influence? How do you use that to change the state of affairs? How do you uh, use that to make a difference in the real world?
Um, so I say this as a backstory for what ended up happening with Prismoji, where I was a data scientist. I was fascinated by emojis. No one else seemed to be... The people who were passionate about data science thought emojis were stupid, and the people who were passionate about emojis didn't know data science. It was a very natural fit for me. Um, it started when I was at Facebook, actually. I, one day I asked, how do we, I wonder what are the top emojis people are using on Instagram? It was just a very random question I had one day. So, you know, we put together a small team, friends of mine who I was like, hey, I'm doing this project. And we ended up working on it. Um, but that, I think, sparked the, the curiosity. And then as soon as I, I left Facebook one day, I was, I was, uh, I found this tutorial on how to look at emoji data on Twitter. And I was like, oh, great, because someone's already done some of the work. So I started, I downloaded it, I, tried, I started using it. It took me many days to get it to work. And then very luckily, right at this time, Brexit happened. Um, and Brexit was in the news everywhere. And I was like, wait, like, I think I can try to get this to work for Brexit. Um, so I did it. I did an analysis of what the top emojis people use for to talk about Brexit. Um, I had a friend at Vice. Um, and I sent it to them like, oh, wow, this is great. We'll publish this right away. And I was like, really? That's it? Like, okay. And I, that's how I became an emoji data scientist. Um, it was just like, this is fun. No one else is doing this. Um, it's, uh, I thought it was, I think it's really important as an educational tool because uh, the way technology is taught to people in our society is very unwelcoming, can be very unwelcoming. Uh, it, it, in the past, definitely. It was something that was for nerds. It was something for people who weren't good at talking to people, for people who sat behind computers. That's why so many young, incredibly brilliant people, when you tell them, do you want to become an engineer or a programmer? They're like, no, that's, that's gross. I mean, this is changing slightly, but not as quickly as we would like because the field of technology and the field of computer science is still very not diverse at all. Um, so I think we need to change this. And doing something like this, when I talk about this work to high school students, they just like at least two out of 30 who go to that talk will come up to me and say, how do I do this? I want to, I'm like, you have to download R. They're like, I want to do it right now. And I think this gets people excited about technology um, because technology is a tool that we can use to understand society, to understand ourselves, to ask questions and uh, to get answers to those questions. That's at, what at its heart, what technology is really is. Um, I think it's not about building a technology that's going to become a billion dollar business or that's going to, you know, be bought by Google or Facebook one day. I mean, that's great. I think it's at, the, at its core, it's about building technology that's going to be useful. Um, and yes, satisfying people's curiosity is, is a type of utility. Getting people excited about a field that previously they would have thought was boring is, is important. And I think that's why, uh, you know, my work at Prismoji is something I'm very uh, proud of. I think Prismoji is something I loved. Um, it gave me an opportunity, gave me a platform to do, to bridge across uh, technology and journalism and to meet all these incredible people. Uh, I think what was so fascinating about that is that emojis really are a gauge of the emotional reaction of an entire nation where, you know, we started out with like these, you know, millions of tweets, very complicated, messy data set. If I just give you an Excel file with 11 million tweets, even if, even if you are a data scientist, it's going to be very hard for you to find something interesting in it, um, to find something meaningful in it, because it's just a lot of messy information. It's like if I give you 11 million people's Fitbit data for the past month, 
But the great thing about emojis is that you can just take these 11 million tweets and you pull out the emojis in these tweets and you figure out what words do people use with what emojis and how do they do this over time. And all of a sudden you see this time plot of as the results start coming in, people start using the middle finger to talk about Trump. Or as the results <laughs> start coming in, people start using the praying hands emoji to talk about Hillary Clinton. It's like all of these things that you're like, oh my God, like that's reflected in the data. Like all of these people's feelings in real time is something that is reflected in what they're tweeting. And we can build tools that allow us to detect that. And I think that's powerful because I think many people assume that social media data is all is just noise. There's, you know, all these people are doing all these things and what's the point? But if I can, you know, write you a few dozen lines of code and you can get a time series of every emoji over, over the course of election day and how it's used, you're like, that makes so much sense. Um, and that's when you really begin to realize how powerful and important these, these tools can be. Hamdan then began working as a lead data scientist at a company called Zap and was tapped by his then mentor, Nick Spanos, to work at another company, BlockTech, as a global ambassador for blockchain. Blockchain, you see, is a digital ledger in which transaction made in Bitcoin or another cryptocurrency are recorded chronologically and publicly. And I went in and all of a sudden it was like I was surrounded by this world that I didn't know too much about um, because blockchain technology is a very new world. There's a lot happening. And uh, very quickly I found myself immersed in it. And then uh, he asked me to go with him to a conference in Belarus um, to speak about data science and the blockchain. And I'd never been to Belarus before. I Googled it and they said Belarus is the last dictatorship in Europe. So after that I was sold. I was like, oh my God, I have to check this place out. Um, we went Thanksgiving of last year, and it was an incredible place. It was my first time in the former Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. Um, we went to speak at this conference. All these people were so passionate about technology. They were so passionate about um, doing something meaningful in the world. There were all these entrepreneurs we met. Um, it was just an incredible experience. I think we have a lot of privilege living in, in New York, in the U.S., um, where all of this is around us and we we sort of have the privilege of rolling our eyes at technology. So I mean, I, I spoke in Belarus and after that it was just, uh, you know, I got I got sucked into this. I, I worked with Naked on BlockTech, on Zap. Um, we spoke in, I think, 15 different countries and it's been a whirlwind of, a, of the past year. So look, going through all this journey, right, and everything you experience, how has uh, data science shaped you as a person and how has it impacted you to where you are now? I think it really gave me an identity um, at a time when, you know, for my parents, either it's like you're a doctor or you're a lawyer or you're an engineer. Those are the three things you're allowed to be. Um, or even when I graduated from college where most of my friends ended up working at, you know, at banks or on Wall Street or, you know, they went to grad school to become scientists. Um, this was a field that wasn't any of those fields. So it allowed me to feel like I was being rebellious and doing something different but at the same time it's a field that is grounded in you know very core uh skills in society it's a, it's a field that quickly became essential to almost any any part of our daily life i think i was very fortunate you know i got into it because i loved it um it was literally the the thing i loved most in college is taking these two statistics classes and learning uh, how to do data analysis um and learning how to visualize data and learning how to how to do all these things and, you know, I was, uh, I think it's, it's, it's given me a lot of uh, opportunity to dabble in all of these different fields 
whereas otherwise I would have had to become an expert in one field. But now I can say I've worked in, I've applied data in politics. I've applied it in advertising. I've applied it in, uh, in uh, brain imaging. I've applied it in demography, like all these different fields that I've, you know, had the privilege of sampling um, and working in. Uh, I think that is, uh, it's great. I think not every field allows you to, to do that. And for someone who's so curious, as curious as I am, I think that's been incredibly rewarding. What do you think is a major concern do you see in the current political atmosphere and how do you want to bring change with data science? I think we live in a world where technology is playing a tremendously important role in all of our lives. We also live in a world where the number of people who understand that technology at a deep level is very, very small. And that group of people is siloed off in, in many respects from the rest of society. It's when, if you ask a qu hypothetical question of how should we regulate Facebook, hypothetically, you, you immediately hit up on a question of who would even regulate Facebook? Like when you had the hearings on Congress, like no one on that committee seemed to know what an algorithm was. Um, so how are you going to have a bunch of old white men um, who probably don't know how to use Excel regulate one of the most sophisticated technology companies in, in the world? Um, it just doesn't compute. Something about that process doesn't compute. Um, and I think it immediately suggests that there's a gap in our society between uh, the people who, whose job it is to build technology and between everyone else whose lives are impacted by these technologies. It also does require that people should become more technologically literate. Um, and I think it, a lot of this work is education. A lot of this is about conversations. Um, and hopefully we're starting to see these walls getting you know, getting torn down a little bit, where I think in the in the new Congress, there are a bunch of scientists who got elected. I think if we wake up and we ask ourselves how, how in how many ways is the world messed up today, we're going to come up with a list of things and feel miserable at the end of it. If we ask ourselves, what can I do today um, to make a positive impact in the world, then we come up with different answers. Thank you for listening to this episode with Data and Tech Ambassador Hamdan Azer. If you'd like to learn more about his work, please visit his website below. Coming up in the next episode of Stories For You, we sat down with concert photographer and cinematographer Tim Toda. All that time that I've been shooting concerts for publications, I never got paid. Uh, that's all just for the fact that I love taking photos and I loved going to concerts. And crazy thing is most of like the majority of the people who are taking photos for concerts or like in con during concerts, they're, they're not, they're probably not getting paid. So it's, it's all, I mean, if you're shooting for something like Rolling Stone or Consequence of Sound or Stereogum, I don't know, these big publications who send out assignments, they'll probably pay you, but they probably pay really little. That's next on Stories For You. This is a Daylight Interactive production. This show is hosted by me, Kazuki Akiba. This week's episode is produced by me and Reed Yerman. Additional dialogue written by Tiffany Koo and Nicole Bernardo. Edited by me and Nicole Bernardo, Ray Lanuza, and Grey Laptop mixed the episode, and music by Grey Laptop. If you're enjoying Stories for You, leave us a review and tell your friends about it. Thanks again for listening. Join us next time on Stories for You as we focus on exciting new voices.